Good evening and welcome to The Midnight Owl. I'm your host, Tim. The Midnight Owl is a proud member of the Not After 30 podcast network. The Midnight Owl is an entertainment podcast. This week's episode is about number stations. Every man is surrounded by a neighborhood of voluntary spies. Jane Austen Bond I was wrong about you. Christmas Jones Yeah, how so? Bond I thought Christmas only comes once a year. From the movie The World Is Not Enough What is a number station? The short answer is that a number station is a shortwave radio station that broadcasts in the frequencies above AM and below FM bands. There are a few variations of what a number station is. The most common depiction in pop culture is a broadcast consisting of a short introduction. This introduction is a musical tone, clip, or phrase that identifies which station it is, then followed by a reading of sets of numbers. There's also polytonal and phase shift broadcasts that are just noises. There are Morse code broadcasts, but they're far less common. The station documented as UVB-76, or by its nickname, The Buzzer, is out of Russia. The Buzzer has been sending out its signal since 1974. It's literally just a buzzing sound that for decades kept a consistent buzzing sound and duration of its buzzes. In 2010, a few voice messages were sent out and then it returned to its previous buzzing state. Some speculate that the buzzing is to keep the channel open so that if the military ever needs a communication line, this frequency will be free. Others have speculated it's a part of a dead hand system. If Russia were to come under nuclear attack, the radio station would go off air, which would trigger a retaliatory nuclear strike against rival nations. I have worked with machines my entire working life. That statement is not designed to make me an expert. Prepare yourself to be horrified. I just hit the thing and jiggle stuff until it works. Worst case, I press a few buttons until things start looking better or worse and then go from there. I work with some machines that cost more than a person's house. And I'm here to tell you that I'm in the majority of people out there. Fake it till you make it does not just exist inside of an office setting. The idea that a radio station built in 1973 which would be like, what, 47 years ago, is responsible for housing a crude artificial intelligence that if knocked off the air could cause World War III is enough to keep a person up at night. Try not thinking about the fact that 
they didn't even have floppy disks, so it's probably reel-to-reel. Hopefully, the bureaucracy over there is up to, to the task of maintaining this outdated tech. There's a definite possibility that there's some low-level technician and he's being trained to maintain these machines for the next 20 years. Maybe he or she has to watch YouTube videos to figure out how to fix it because no one else is familiar with the archaic act of taking a pencil and respooling a cassette. The voices of the regular number stations are usually artificial, but not always. Broadcasts are set to regular times, and some stations have been broadcasting these creepy messages for decades. Number stations have been around since World War II. Some suspect that they had their infancy in World War I with the Morse code burst transmissions. Number stations were the most prolific during the Cold War. Only in recent years have a few number stations started shutting down, while many are still in operation. Number stations are most likely coded messages being sent to undercover operatives embedded in foreign nations. We only know as much as we do about number stations because of a core of dedicated radio enthusiasts tuning in dials in the dead of night with clear weather conditions, trying to hear long-distance transmissions from other enthusiasts. It's a common experiment for these hobbyists to test their equipment and their skill. These enthusiasts stumbled upon these transmissions and were creeped out and curious about their origin and meaning. They passed along the frequency and times of these transmissions that they caught to other enthusiasts. It is illegal to broadcast a radio signal without a license. When approached, most governments simply say that they are unregistered so they cannot provide any information or that these transmissions are not meant for public consumption. Like any other conspiracy theory when the government is only giving half answers, a group of people step forward to poke and prod and try to figure out things for themselves. The curious minds that picked up these odd signals have recorded number stations and shared information for decades. After years of investigations by civilians, people have narrowed down the time and frequencies of certain broadcasts and collected a database of all of the recorded transmissions. They've also triangulated the signals to mark the possible locations of where the signals are being broadcast from. You can check out these transmissions on the internet anytime. The Conet Project is the best place I have found so far. There's also sites where you can use actual shortwave radio stations placed all around the world to listen in. There are lots of lists out there of broadcast times and frequencies so you can hear for yourself. 
In a sense, every conspiracy theorist knows about number stations. This isn't hidden, but it's been around so long that we're desensitized from thinking about it. It's so mundane and the purpose is clear that it doesn't inspire much more intrigue. Sure, we want to know what they are telling each other, where the locations the spies are that they're broadcasting to, but it's really likely we'll never have any answers to those questions. It's one of those things that just is. We have followed the rabbit hole as far as it can go. Not to be the proverbial hammer hitting the nail on the head one too many times, try and let go of the way that we think about spies. Bond and Bourne are the ones that always come to my mind. Action heroes, where they follow the typical hero's journey. The call to action, making of friends or finding a mentor. The denial, the resumption of the journey, and defeating the great enemy. But what is a real spy like? Are they just government workers payrolled with hopefully a decent benefit package and retirement fund? Are they idealists that have such a moral belief in the way that their country's government operates that they're willing to sacrifice their own life for the greater good? Are they thrill-seekers trying to live out a life of fantasy adventure? Or are they just good moral people that see the way their home is being turned by evil people and they are willing to work for a foreign power to stop the corruption of their political or religious beliefs. When politics and religion are used to commit atrocities, there's always great men and women that have the moral strength to gather and inform because they believe in the legacy of humanity and they must take a stand. Who are the broadcasters? The ones behind the mic? Those whose job it is to reach out there to their co-workers. Decades they would toil away on military bases or hidden bunkers recording and sending their covert communications. For security's sakes, the broadcasters might not know the exact message because it's already been encoded. The broadcaster wouldn't know to whom or how many agents they're broadcasting to. Twenty years or more of shouting into the void, hoping the person you are trying to reach is still listening is still alive. You get to go home every day and they can't and may never. Will your mute friend ever respond? Will they hear you and find a touch of calm in your robotically masked voice? As a third-rate podcaster, I understand shouting into the nothingness. Since number stations are real, then what are their purpose? There's only a few possible answers. 1. It's a long-lasting joke by a group of artists. Not likely with the expense of running these stations and their estimated locations being on military bases. 2. Psychological warfare. If another nation has to divert money on spy hunting and not military buildup, you're winning. 3. 
It's a nearly unbreakable form of communication for a network of spies. Two and three are the most likely answers to me. Either way, if it's a possibility that your country is having foreign espionage active on your soil, you have to act as if it's the absolute truth. We have to kind of accept that there are spies active across the world. Since the signal reaches everywhere, anywhere could be their location. These spies are living in neighborhoods. Maybe some get to be rich power brokers. Many more are probably just mundane, everyday people living in a cul-de-sac going about their day-to-day -day life. These spies are receiving missions and filing reports. I wonder since any contact with a handler could cause exposure, do they have to go through performance reviews? Sure, she's a great spy and her work has been exemplary, but she hasn't been showing enough effort in her covert identity as a receptionist at her cover office. We also have recordings from the lunchroom, and Karen says her clothes are dated and her lunch is stinky. Based on all reports, Karen is a bitch, but I think we might have to factor this into her raise this year. Operating a spy network of sending and receiving missions and reports isn't cheap. They have to be somewhat effective. Sure, governments like to piss away money, but no government is going to continue an operation without gain for so long as these stations have been around for. Having the psychological effect of the number stations is cheaper than actually employing spies in a network to receive the data back and analyze it. How fucking scared would you be? You've been embedded in another nation for 30 years. Going about your life and doing dead drops and CD locations, all that stuff. Getting missions from a radio hidden in your garage. You know, like, you have it there so you can pretend to be working on your car. And you're messing around, monkey wrenching. And then one day, it's silent. Maybe a week goes by and it's still silent. Has your nation fallen? Is someone coming to end your life because you might be a loose end to a story they don't want to talk about or answer any questions to? Or did some hotshot new politician decide to strike the budget for a radio station operating on a military base and this guy didn't even bother to ask what it was broadcasting. But those funds could be funneled into a new project that could buy votes for re-election later. These spies have been doing this for so long, I wonder how many are buried in foreign countries under their assumed identities. Jesse O'Connor, 1981-2027 to Loving father, caring husband, crusader for Mother Russia. Number stations broadcast in the shortwave because of the way the radio waves interact with the atmosphere, bouncing and propagating the signal. Some of my readings suggest that in the right conditions with a powerful enough transmitter, a station could broadcast right across the world. You can triangulate a signal with enough time and data, but anyone with a regular radio and knowing when to listen and what frequency to tune into can pick up that message. During the Cold War, after a spy had been given the proper training to lose their accent, to think and act like a perfect example of a citizen of the country they were being sent to infiltrate, they would land, find a graveyard, and locate a tombstone of someone that approximated their age who died as a child. That operative would then purchase documentation to resurrect that forgotten identity. Maybe there's a weak-willed government official or clergyman that can be swayed with cash. Maybe by more forceful means. 
but armed with an identity, all a spy'd need do is purchase a radio. Probably easier to do back in the day, but now... You know, I was thinking yard sales. But, uh, just checked on um, Amazon. And of course, Amazon has shortwave radio receivers ranging from $28, their best buy option, all the way up to $350. Battery operated and portable as heck there, bud. The common idea is that an operative knows when and where to tune in. Messages decoded using a one-time pad. I'll try and give the layman's explanation of this since I don't fully understand. It involves math and spelling, not two of my strong suits. Until they use snarky comments and bad puns, I don't think I'll be much use in the espionage world. The agent leaves their country with a booklet of one-time ciphers. It's predetermined when each cipher will be used, or part of the transmission will include a coded message as to what page to go to. There's a bunch of ways that it can look, but commonly it's a simple X and Y axis. This axis fills in a grid of letters. Using false addition and subtraction, whatever method was decided beforehand, each number given by the transmission is changed. So let's say I'm a Canadian agent. I'm embedded somewhere, and I get my message. We have decided that the mathematical equation is that every number I get is subtracted by 2. I hear 23, 46, 92, 3, 8, 7. I know my numbers are really 21, 44, 89, 1, 6, 5. Anyone listening in won't know the math we decided before I left. Of course, the math is more complicated for a competent agent, but not by much. For the Morse code transmissions, it would be much the same, just with the extra step of translating the Morse to letters or numbers. Being that it's coded, you would just create your own alphabet to translate to, and you have an extra layer of security. So, anyone listening in doesn't know the math to get the numbers that they need. They don't have the rubric to translate the numbers, and even then, they don't have any idea if the transmissions are just misdirection with nothing to decode. Do you think there's any analyst that has spent 40 hours a week for 35 years, pensioned out, sitting in a cubicle because someone has to listen and try and decode the messages, even though it's impossible? Talk about a dream job. Listen to your couple hours of fresh recordings each day, tap a pencil and pretend until lunch to give a fuck, and then sit there all afternoon, headphones in, listening to podcasts because you got the busy work job. I'm jealous. I haven't read how any of the polytonal stuff is decoded. My best guess is there's... N My best guess is the noise-based transmissions are decoded by a computer. Seems simple if you have a laptop with the decoder software. Remove its ability to hook up to the internet, just have it listen and decode, and you should be somewhat safe. Not as safe as a one-time pad, though. With a one-time pad, they can be burnt or eaten. Some people have suggested the Americans even found a way to make them so that they could be chewed like a stick of gum. With a computer, it's got to be destroyed. If you're not home, it can't even be used. We are all familiar with computers now so that once something is written, once something is sent, it's recorded. 
It's traceable. It's next to impossible to destroy. Sure, there's a lot of magic in how it all works, but we've all seen CSI. Apparently a tech can take a crushed and burnt hard drive and fire it right back up in a single commercial break. I find with this episode I keep getting stuck in certain locations, and it's more about the life of the spies. Who'd want to accept this assignment? What kind of person would you trust to send? I think I can understand someone deciding to give up their life and live a lie for a foreign political ideology. Maybe you believe in communism or democracy. Maybe you have a strong religious belief or strong moral belief. And you believe that the people of this foreign country are being misled by a governmental structure that is actually hurting them. You're doing it for the people's good more than your own self-aggrandizement. But governments fall all the time. Even political parties change over time to barely resemble themselves. As we get older, the idealist in us dies. We all still want better, but having earned your small slice of freedom, it's important to spend your energy trying to not rock the boat. My back hurts, and I'm tired. Did you want me to care about what? Come on. Maybe they have leveraged something against you so that if you are embedded somewhere too long, you won't risk breaking cover because of the consequences. I don't know what the retirement plan for spies is. I assume you old age out and go home, if never caught. And only a handful of people have ever been publicly accused. There has to be a legion of elderly spies roaming the old age homes with their tales of intrigue. At that point, if you built a life somewhere else, I wonder how many just went inactive but stayed in their cover life, under the name they were given because the mask became their face. In Canada, being a second-generation Canadian can be a benefit when applying to government jobs. So let's play with this thought. It is not beyond the realm of possibility that there is a second generation of spies. A couple has been sent over. They're to be posing as a married couple. They have children, and they act the part of good old Canadian folks. But what is in the mind of a second-generation spy? In the hearts of these kids, they hold their loyalties to what? Family you've never met and will never know? A political system you've only ever heard second-hand experiences of? Yes, it is the responsibility of parents to instill moral codes into their kids. But how do you instill an ideology or belief into your children when you're trying to blend in? These kids could be well-placed in immigration or border control to get more spies in, but to what end? They could move up in the government, obtaining more and more sensitive documentation. Or, they could be set up on the path of social media influencer, so that they can help direct conversation and spread state-run propaganda to a foreign nation's youth. Maybe that could help win elections for supportive candidates. Or maybe it's something more sinister. Do you think the Tide Pod Challenge was an aggressive act by a foreign government to incapacitate our kids? Probably not, but you never know. We have so many moments of judging our parents as we grow up. It's not until we are deep into adulthood we realize that they know nothing and everyone is guessing. 
the godlike status we hold them in is tarnished when we see them fail. How do you reconcile their disappointments as people with the fact that they're secret agents? As a spy, do you break it to your kids that you're truly Russian agents? When do you do this? A teenager would be too set in their view of how the world works. A child would be too much of a security risk. I was daydreaming about this while writing this episode and I thought about an 8-year-old at a birthday party in a McDonald's playroom. Grimace just brought out their McCain's deep and delicious cake. And before you can go play with your friends in the ball pit, your mother brings you aside. Her breath is rancid from a mixture of vodka and that shitty orange drink. Your mother whispers in an accent you've never heard before. Your true name is Mikael. Do not allow capitalist decadence to ruin your spirit, comrade. You, Mikael, are son of Mother Russia. Now go play, and don't tell others, or I'll have to kill you all. <laughs> I like to imagine a moment when they realize that their child is so shaped by the society that they were born into that they have a sudden realization. Like, oh fuck, I gave birth to an American. All in all, if you're looking at the long game, not a bad way to get a Manchurian candidate installed. Nuclear war and spies and so many other things is hard for people my age or younger to understand, I think. We have grown up in a world with access to so much information. I think there's a knee-jerk reaction to shrug your shoulders when it comes to information-gathering efforts. It doesn't affect me, and it's going to happen anyways kind of attitude. I want to play a clip here from another podcaster, Ken. He runs the Dick and Jane's podcast. His podcast and cover identity is the Scarborough Dude. He recently sent me a clip where he talked a little bit about his life and the world that shaped him. This clip feels fitting on how someone that grew up during the Cold War would have had their ideas shaped by the monumental events of that time. So, there's this thing about childhood in the 1950s. The, the world you see on old TV shows, retro shows, Leave it to Beaver, Father Knows Best. If you're white and you're middle class, I mean, you had, you had everything. You had it made. You had your wagon and your tricycle and your toys. and You just had this wonderful little world you lived in. It was safe. Dad went off to work. Mom made, you know, homemade meals and uh, apple pie. And every kid in school learned to read through these Dicks and Janes readers, which reflected that white middle class, house of the picket fence world. And it was, uh, it was safe and it was comfortable and it was wonderful. What'd Beaver want? Oh, he uh, wants to know if he can ride his new bike to school. Oh, what'd you tell him? Well, I told him I'd talk it over with you. Oh, I see. Then if you say no, I get half the blame. <laughs> well, actually, it isn't far to school, and there's not much traffic on the way. Oh, I don't suppose there's any danger in it, but well, I'd just feel a lot better if he kept riding the bus. Oh, all right. But, you know, I think instead of coming right out and saying no, I'll just kind of point out the advantages of riding the bus. You know, it's uh, more comfortable, it's better in rainy weather. Are you sure of getting to school on time? 
I think we'll find he'll just give up the idea of riding his bike. You know, Orrin, you're a very clever father. <laughs> and then around about 1961, something weird kind of happened. The adult world crept into your childhood. There's talk on the radio of uh, something called a Cuban Missile Crisis, something about Khrushchev and the Soviet Union and uh, President Kennedy. This government, as promised, has maintained the closest surveillance of the Soviet military buildup on the island of Cuba. And they were, they were threatening each other, and there was talk of a, of a possible war. And this war was, was not like the war you read about in the comic books. This was going to be a different war. This was going to be nuclear fallout. You're going to die. And uh, people were building fallout shelters, and... The radios are playing warnings. This is a warning. This is a warning. This is not for real. This is a nationwide emergency broadcast system drill. For the next 30 minutes, you will hear broadcasting on the two Conrad frequencies of 640 and 1240 kilocycles on your regular radio receiver. And uh, an air raid siren went up at the school across the street from us and this thing would go off the wind would set it and you'd hear this siren going in the middle of the night and you wonder what the hell's that and you weren't really scared because it was you know it was your, your parents world but you knew it was kind of weird and and the adults seemed really shook up by what was going on but you lived through it and nothing happened the siren stayed up there for another decade or so and it disappeared and it all went away and then something else happened. There was a war over in Southeast Asia, in Vietnam, starting to show up on the television. And people were getting upset. And by this point, you're a little older, and you're thinking, holy shit, that doesn't look good. And you're seeing bodies being carried out. You're seeing these young American soldiers. And you're thinking, man, that, that, could, that could be me. And things start to change. And you get a little older, and suddenly there's people pushing back and you're 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 entering that world of of the grown-ups and you're realizing this this is not nice what's happening here i i wouldn't want to be going off to that war i i don't want to die and then this music comes out and suddenly there's something called the british wave and you're hearing these great songs from all over and it's 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 changing they're pushing the the beach boys off the uh off the charts. And again, the Beach Boys, that, that white middle-class world of happy surfing dudes. No, man, there's something happening here. Something happening here. What, what it is, ain't exactly ain't clear. Exactly clear. There's, there's a man with a, a gun, man over there. gun over there. Telling me I got to beware. And, and... You're you're a part of it, and this music starts to talk to you, and then something else gets thrown into the equation. Something called hashish, marijuana, and LSD, and drugs that your parents weren't giving you, but your friends knew all about them, and you'd sit around, you'd go to your buddy's house, play records in the basement, but what are you doing? You sit around a water pipe. And you're smoking up and you're listening to Pink Floyd and Abbey Road and all this stuff. And you're feeling really good and you realize you're in another world of kind of an augmented reality. And not the way they talk about on computers and stuff. 
but in terms of switching your mind and that whole world of dicks and jeans those little readers and those little kids has been turned on its head and you're part of this anti-war movement and your heroes are the jack kerouacs and neil cassidy's the alan watts the timothy learys of the world this is augmented reality this is looking at what's out there and putting a different spin on and realizing wow I don't want to play that game. I don't want to be part of that adult world. I want to be on the other side. I want to be pushing back, pushing back. And that's where you find yourself. You find yourself with a different identity that's not the one that was pinned on you in grade two and grade three when you're reading. It's a new identity. You're part of this hippie generation. You're part of this thing and all you want to do is travel and experience the world and and look for love and peace and more dope man because that's what it's all about that's what it's all about and now 50 years later plug back in and enjoying it very much and sharing it through this little world of amateur podcasting this special little world you can join in we can send our messages out and big brother's not watching this is ours this is our world we can claim it we can live it we can share it HARP, or High Frequency Active Aeroral Research Program, is a target for many conspiracy theories. I'm going to save most of those for another fully formed episode later, but basically it's a research program in Alaska that is trying to study the ionosphere of the Earth and its effect on communications. Essentially, the entire facility is a large radio transmitter and antenna that operates in the shortwave band. Sounds straightforward, right? Except HARP was founded through funding by the Department of Defense. It has made a ton of money disappear. And because of the nature of the department that funded it, the end goals and exact methodology of the experimentation has been classified. There are a ton of conspiracy theories regarding HARP. Some have to do with weather control, mind control, or connections to earthquakes and floods the world over. And I don't know enough about these conspiracies right now to speak to them. There are facilities in Sweden, Norway, and Finland, and the Superdarn network that is said to have similar capabilities and motives. But what struck me is that no one has made the connection between number stations and these facilities. Probably for a good reason, I just haven't read yet. Or, maybe since the signal is pointed up, it's just assumed that it would make an ineffective station since none of its transmissions would be picked up on the surface of the Earth. That is, unless it's not meant for Earth. 
hypothetically, if it were transmitting out into space, who would they be trying to contact, and why would that be a secret? Radio waves travel at the speed of light through space. But even then, at such vast distances between solar systems, it would take hundreds or thousands of years to contact anyone. To send a signal to the moon is 2.7 seconds. Less of a delay than a news correspondent live on location the next town over. So, not that bad. To get the signal to Mars, it's 13 minutes. Either way, it could be a final destination, or it could be a listening station ready to rebroadcast with alien technology that could be faster than light. So if it doesn't make sense that number stations have been reaching out to the same people for over 50 years, maybe it's time for a more logical explanation. The reason UFO sightings have gone down since the 60s and 70s is that the aliens knew we were going to begin launching satellites and developing better technology for tracking their movements with faster planes that'll get better looks at these reclusive invaders. Through their abductions program, they gathered enough genetic information to create a generation of star children. Star children are a race of human-alien hybrids that infiltrated our, our political and military complexes. We may have created number stations out of World War II, but they jumped on the opportunity, supplanting the people in charge and arranging for the funding to keep the broadcasting stations open and designing the messaging systems themselves. This wouldn't even need to be a massive effort. You would only need the person writing the messages to be a star child, because everything else is so encrypted that no one else would know. And in the spy game, you probably don't want to ask too many questions anyways. Expanding on the idea of psychological warfare for cost savings, no spies are out there listening anymore anyways. It's just reports that HARP captures, re-encrypts, and broadcasts out to the alien listening posts on the moons of Jupiter. Now keep this in mind that it's just a theory. It's difficult to tell if they will enslave or consume us. But one thing is for certain, there is no stopping them. The aliens will soon be here, and I for one welcome our new otherworldly overlords. I'd like to remind them that as a trusted podcast personality, I can be helpful in rounding up others to toil in their underground sugar caves. Unless it's the Illuminati, in which case I would like to welcome our new Illuminati overlords. As a trusted podcast personality, I will gladly serve the 1%. I will happily take part in rounding up any dissenters for our new reptilian overlords. It's... I think it's part of human nature in many ways to want to pass information secretly. From kids in the back of a classroom passing notes. Hyestus, uh, a Greek tyrant. He shaved his most trusted slave's head and tattooed a message onto his scalp. Then let the hair grow back and sent him out to deliver the message. Vivali Dickinson, a New York woman, sent information to the Japanese through contacts in Argentina by masking it as correspondence about her doll shop. Jeremiah Denton blinked in Morse code the word torture over and over again during a forced interview by his captors, the North Vietnamese. We need information gathering, and I'm not disputing that. But we also need oversight on special operations like number stations and others. It's far beyond my pay grade to understand the risks these men and women take, the resources and windfalls that they bring to my nation, and I would have no idea how to oversee any operation like this. 
But if there is a network of spies operating across the world on a whim of a governmental body, my governmental body, if they are not watched and controlled, what would stop them from casting glances back at their own government, developing the desire to control the reins that direct them? As I mentioned earlier, there have been a few operatives that have been caught that are associated with number stations. Vakalev Zhalnik was a Cold War-era Czechoslovak spy who worked in London under the assumed identity of Erwin von Harlem. The real Erwin von Harlem was born on August 22, 1944. He was given up for adoption in Hoslev, Prague. He was later listed in the Netherlands as a missing person. After compulsory national service, Jelnik became a sergeant, working for the Ministry of the Interior. He was recruited by the Czechoslovak secret police and was promoted to the rank of lieutenant. He adopted Van Harlem's identity and moved to London in June of 1975, using a genuine Dutch passport illicitly obtained Van Harlem's name. He obtained work at the Hilton Hotel restaurant and began spying on the United Kingdom and the United States. For the STB and for the KGB, they're equivalent in the Soviet Union. Although he posed as a Dutch national, he never lived in the Netherlands. Johan van Harlem was the real Erwin van Harlem's mother. When Johan van Harlem contacted him in 1977, believing him to be her real son, he was ordered to play along in order to not blow his cover, and did so, even going so far as to visit her family in Holland. Zelnik did not care for this woman. Seeing her fraternization with Nazis during the occupation is proof that she was a fascist. Eventually, Zelnik tired of working as a waiter, and with funding from the STB, moved to North London and set up as an art dealer. He was eventually arrested in his flat on the 22nd of April, 1988, while in the process of receiving coded messages by radio. The reason he was caught was that his radio equipment was faulty and radiated into other apartments. Hidden among his easels and paintings, detectives discovered tiny code books concealed in bars of soaps, strange chemicals, and car magazines later found to contain messages written in invisible ink. For 11 years, Jelnik kept up this lie. As a result of this deceit, Johann von Harlem was not reunited with her real son until February of 1992. Even during his interrogation, he spoke to this woman as if she was his mother. The jury returned a guilty verdict after just 45 minutes of deliberation on March 3rd, 1989. He was sentenced to 10 years imprisonment. Following an unsuccessful escape attempt and a period on a hunger strike, as well as lobbying on behalf of the Czech diplomats, Zelnik was freed on the 5th of April, 1993, and deported back to the Czech Republic. As of 2016, Zelnik was living in Prague. Anna Balin Montez was an analyst for the DIA, Defense Intelligence Agency. I'd never heard about this agency before today. Her area of responsibility was Latin America, specializing in Cuba. It would eventually come to light that Anna Montez was a double agent for Cuba. Using her outstanding memory, she would memorize documents, copying them down when she got home. 
She was instructed through the number station based out of Cuba, Atencion. The prosecutor stated that all of the information was on water-soluble paper that could be rapidly destroyed. During the course of the investigation against her, it was determined that Montes had passed a considerable amount of classified information to the Cuban Intelligence Directorate, including the identities of four U.S. spies in Cuba. September 21, 2001, Ana Montes was arrested. In 2007, American DIA counterintelligence official Scott W. Carmichael publicly alleged that it was Ana Montes who told the Cuban intelligence officers about a clandestine U.S. Army camp in El Salvador. Carmichael alleged that Montes knew about the existence of the Special Forces camps because she visited only a few weeks before the camp was attacked in 1987 by Cuban-supported guerrillas. Carmichael, who led the DIA investigation of Montez, named her as being directly responsible for the death of Green Beret Sergeant Gregory A. Fronyes. 2001 is not that long ago, folks. 19 years. The Cuban Five are five Cuban intelligence officers who were arrested in September 1998 and later convicted in Miami of conspiracy to commit espionage, conspiracy to commit murder, acting as an agent of a foreign government, and other illegal activities in the United States. The five were in the United States to observe and infiltrate Cuban-American groups, made up of political refugees, exiles from Cuba. The Cuban government acknowledged that the five were intelligence agents in 2001, the Cuban government said that they were spying on Miami's Cuban exile community, not the U.S. government. Cuba says that the men were sent to South Florida in the wake of several terrorist bombings in Havana, organized by anti-communist terrorists. They have always stuck by their claim that they're an anti-terrorist unit, and because of the area that they had their trial in in Florida with a large Cuban exile community, that it was not in fact a fair trial. United States government's evidence included the following three examples of decoded attention messages. Prioritize and continue to strengthen friendships with Joe and Dennis. Under no circumstances should agents German nor Castor fly with BTTR or another organization on the days of 24, 25, 26, and 27. BTTR is the anti-Castro airborne group Brothers to the Rescue. Congratulate all the female comrades for International Day of the Woman. In Cuba, the five are viewed by the government as national heroes and portrayed as having sac sacrificed their liberty in the defense of their country. Rene Gonzalez was released from prison on October 7, 2011. Fernando Gonzalez was released on February 27, 2014. The remaining members were released on December 17, 2014, in a prisoner swap with Cuba for an American intelligence officer, identified uh, by a senior American as Ronaldo Sarif Torrijo. Torrijo. Both Anamantes and the Cuban Five would have received their directions from the same station. Thank you.
Originally nicknamed Attention, uh, this station has morphed into HM01, a female voice speaking in Spanish. The transformation to HM01 happened in November of 2012. Its signal frequently mixes with the state-run radio station, which makes people suspect it comes from the same building. It's the only station known that has a hybrid system of a voice header for the messages and a digital transmission mode. The dial-up modem sound is sending digital files called RDFT, redundant digital files. When ran through a special software, it can decode into a jumbled ciphertext that can then be decrypted. The program used by HM01 was created by a Brazilian radio enthusiast and is available online for free. It runs on Windows XP, whose login and logout jingles have been heard during several of the station's documented mishaps. Well, folks, I'll leave you with this final thought. I hate the radio. In my area, the radio is the most watered-down bullshit nonsense. They play the same five songs in rotation until it's time for the next new song. One cycles in, one cycles out. The conversations are nonsense banter that revolve around what's trending, so it often reads like a Facebook news feed of bullshit clickbait after bullshit clickbait. With this level of bile that I've already developed, anyone that tells me they willfully listen to the radio is already suspect. I have heard rumors from trusted friends that in distant lands like Ottawa or Toronto, there's a few holdouts for radio shows that are still decent. I want to believe. It feels nice having number stations as a background thought. I'm not insane. The reason people are pretending to listen to the radio is that they are really just undercover agents disguising their actions. It's only on as a cover so that they can flip back and get their clandestine orders when curious ears are no longer listening. I think that if I was a spy, I'd have a shortwave radio installed in my vehicle. I could make a scheduled reason to go for a drive every day at that specific time. It would be a two-person operation, a person driving and another writing down the messages for decoding later. Imagine this the next time you're traveling into town. Maybe you have a late night errand or you want to hit the gym in the quiet hours and you pass a van. The van passes you by quickly, but it just so happens the way they round the country corner, the way the street lamp at the intersection hits it, you see inside. Family is in there, with two adults in the front. One is driving, the other has the overhead lamp on and is scribbling in a book. In the back, a blue glow from what you assume to be a TV screen. And just like that, they're gone. A sight seen a million times in your lifetime. Nothing more mundane than a passing interaction you would have no reason to think about more than that. In that van, the driver's attention is split three ways. A portion is searching the ditches for deer. Another keeping an eye out behind them for a tail. The third and most important portion is diverted to watching the kids in the back seat, a finger on the mode switch button of the steering column just in case their headphones come off. Those tiny cherubic faces giggling in the blue glow of the screen, lost in the propaganda of this wretched nation, teaching them materialism, exclusion, and decadence is that demon Spongebob. 
They are sons and daughters of the revolution, and it shames the driver to know that they could be poisoned like all the other self-entitled brats of this bloated country. That being said, Spongebob serves its purpose, and they are lost and happy and not whining for mom and dad. Mikael and Anastasia. Mike and Anna. Good kids. These thoughts distract just enough to tune out the intermittent fuzz of the station dropping in and out on the radio. The Canadian Shield is filled with rock cuts through large rocky ridges, hills and trees that play merry hell with the signal. The passenger in the front is diligent about writing down the numbers. One by one she triple checks their accuracy as the broadcast replays. In her lap is two books. An adult coloring book that has the odd characteristic of every other page being blank. If anyone asks, it's to promote imagination by trying to create something for yourself. This is where the numbers are written. Underneath is a puzzle book, a gift from her father that she holds dear if anyone asks to see it. Both are highly flammable. Both will follow the couple into the arena for tonight's game. One of the operatives will decode, transferring the numbers to the puzzle, and working out the message. The other will play the part of hockey parent. It's worth noting that both hate the coffee here. A double-double is the Canadian thing to order, so that's what they order. But it tastes sickly sweet. Two sugars, two cream. It's a gluttonous waste. During the game, they cheer for the kids, boo the refs, occasionally scrapping with other hockey moms and dads. You know, for appearances sake. The kids love hockey. If they were to continue, would they play in the Olympics? This time and every other time, it would look so mundane, so boring, that no one would notice. So the next time you sit down at your niece's rugby match or your nephew's hockey game, take a look around. Maybe there's someone there that's in the midst of conspiracy or espionage. Or... Maybe their kid just sucks at sports and they can't bear to watch, so they bury themselves in anything else to distract from the disappointment of this is where their genetics landed. All to say, have a great week, and don't forget to owl at the moon. Hoot hoot. I hear here twenty three forty six ninety two three eight seven. So I know my numbers are really. Tw Don't take over my thing, Richard. For the most, for the Morse code transmissions, it would be much the same, just with the extra step of. <laughs> Nothing more mundane than passing and 